Welcome to Densely Speaking, conversations about cities, economics, and law. I'm Greg Schill, a law professor at the University of Iowa. I'm Jeffrey Lynn. I'm an economist at the Philadelphia Fed. Joining us today are Michelle Laser and Kaylin Slattery, professors at the University of Illinois College of Law and Columbia Business School, respectively. Today, we will be discussing Michelle's paper, How Place-Based Tax Incentives Can Reduce Geographic Inequality. Kaylin is an assistant professor in the economics division at Columbia Business School. She's interested in strategic interactions between local governments, the effectiveness of state and local tax incentives, the role of politics and economic development policy, and the spillover effects of firm location decisions. She has a new paper called Bidding for Firms, Subsidy Competition in the U.S., and we thought she would be a great co-host for today's episode. Welcome, Michelle and Kaylin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Michelle, your paper jumps right into an evergreen, but also particularly current debate on place-based versus people-based measures. Can you explain for us what that debate is and where your paper fits in? Yeah, so place-based tax incentives have been used by policymakers and, and state and local governments for years to encourage investors to invest in low-income areas. Now, I've studied these incentives in a number of contexts, but a question that kind of comes up all the time is why do this at all? Why use place-based tax incentives as a mechanism for helping people? If you want to help people, why not just direct assistance to individuals themselves? And so this paper was very much an attempt on my part to answer that question and to think hard about the role of place-based tax incentives and, and in what ways they can be used to make life better for people who live in disadvantaged neighborhoods. I've given a lot of thought to what it is uniquely about place that would perhaps merit directing assistance to places as opposed to people. And through that research, I've come up with a few basic examples of features of place that seem to really exacerbate individual conditions associated with poverty and and family structure and educational attainment. Those come down to distance from job opportunities and public transportation, a history of disinvestment in certain areas that has been facilitated by our legal system and basic market structure, and the ways that different neighborhoods have grown into having different kinds of communication networks and social networks among residents. These geographic differences among places have a tendency to exacerbate problems associated with poverty and low-income communities more generally. And I believe that place-based tax incentives do have a place in addressing some of those specific place-based problems. So that's kind of in a nutshell what my paper is about, and I look forward to kind of unpacking that over the rest of the podcast. Right. So a big part of the kind of intellectual foundation for why we might want place-based policies is because we think there might be really important place-specific factors in determining outcomes for people, right? It's related to sort of this really classic inference problem, which is when you see a lot of low-income households living near each other, is that because 
there's some kind of play-specific factor that's holding them back? Or is that because they have sort of correlated preferences for things that are in that neighborhood? For example, like low housing prices. Your article reviews a pretty big literature arguing that the former is a pretty important part of this explanation. Yeah, that's right. And as you know, and as I'm sure Kaylin knows, traditionally when thinking about place-based inequality, the solutions have tended to focus on assistance to individuals and mobility programs that would enable people's ability to move around and seek out more high opportunity living environments, for example. Part of my thought was those policies probably are important. I don't argue that they're not, but are there aspects of the problem that they just can't quite reach? To the extent that there are some problems that are just left in place even after successfully implementing those people-based approaches, there may be room to supplement that with place-based policies for a more holistic and complete policy response. And so that's really where my paper comes in. It's not necessarily arguing that place-based approaches are preferable as a baseline or should be the sole response to this problem. I don't think that that makes a lot of sense if you really look at the literature. But I do think there's a place for it. And I think once we we're comfortable with the idea that place-based policy is an important part of the overall strategy, we have to take seriously the fact that tax incentives tend to be a, a choice policy tool within that broader category. Right. I think that pairing these type of place-based policies with people-based policies is a totally reasonable thing to do and something that has been gaining more and more popularity in in recent years as we see the increase in geographic inequality, especially in the United States. So that's why I think that the paper is super timely because now the tide is turning a little bit on the popularity of place-based policies. Yeah. And I mean, I think place-based policies have been around for a while, but they've kind of really jumped into the conversation a lot more with the introduction of opportunity zones. Just for listeners who may not be familiar, Opportunity zones are a new tax device that were introduced with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act in 2017. And what it essentially does is it gives uh, taxpayers capital gains relief if they sell an asset for a gain and then roll those proceeds into an opportunity fund. Opportunity funds, in turn, invest that cash in property and projects in low-income areas, right? And so when this tool was first pitched, it had broad bipartisan support. It barely you know, made a blip on the headlines, even my Twitter feed, which is full of this kind of thing. I barely saw it coming, right? And then it's rolled out and people take a closer look and they think, what is this? And the New York Times start publishing these big exposés on opportunity zones and ProPublica starts reporting on abuses of opportunity zones. And all of a sudden it becomes clear that this tax incentive that was being pitched as beneficial for low-income communities may not be beneficial at all. And so it really changed the way that we're thinking about these policies. And so one response to that might be to say, I'm so skeptical, I don't think that this is an approach that ever makes sense. We should just abandon this entire exercise. Another response may be to say, this is a particularly bad example of how to do it. I'm inclined to think that this is a particularly bad example of how to do it. And some of the previous tools have been better, not perfect, but better. And so part of my project is to figure out what would good look like? We're probably never going to get all the way to good, but how can we do it better if we're going to go ahead and be realistic about it and assume that we're going to, to see this, this approach used and come back up over and over again? 
Yeah, a big theme in your paper is the problem of targeting, right? Like, how do we find the best places to assign these programs? What's your diagnosis as to like why targeting is so hard and why, what should we do about it? Oh, man. Well, I think part of it is that there's no clear consensus on what we're trying to do with these laws to begin with. And I think that depending on who's supporting it, their reasons for supporting it may well vary. So Opportunity Zones is a really interesting example in which the law was very broad in defining what could count as Opportunity Zones. And then we looked to state governors to select specific areas. In some ways, that seems like a good thing, right? State governors are closer to the ground. They can figure out which areas really need the support. Why have the federal government make this rule? This should be a local decision. The problem, as we've seen, and I think Kaylin can talk to this as well, is that there's a lot of evidence that lobbies and really powerful political factions had played a significant and outsized role in encouraging governors to designate some areas as opportunity zones versus others. And so their politics comes into play, right? Who has the power? Who's, who's really driving these decisions in the end? Is it being driven by a genuine interest in serving low-income populations with a very specific strategy, as I've outlined in my paper? Historically, not at all, right? And so the question is, can we shift to something that's a little bit more conscious? I hope that my research will, at minimum, provide a template to think a little bit harder about these questions so that the kind of unthinking bipartisan response to these programs might be questioned a little bit more. So we might think a little bit more about the design when deciding whether to throw our support behind it. But historically, nothing like I've described has been really implemented in the policymaking. So you talk about three sources of geographic inequality in the article. I'd like to walk through those and also the data work that went into informing your analysis here. So the first one is spatial mismatch, the distance from a community to job opportunities. You focused on Chicago there. Can you walk us through the data sources and the programs that you used to study that and what you found? Yeah. So the theory of spatial mismatch is essentially that persistent poverty and unemployment can be explained, at least in part, by the distance between jobs and where people live. With the wrinkle being, if people have good public transportation options to connect their residency to those jobs, the impact of spatial mismatch may be muted. And so what I thought was, you know, this is a theory that is very commonly cited. You see this in very recent Urban Institute reports looking at tax incentives and what areas are experiencing spatial mismatch. You hear it a lot as a justification. So to what degree does this make sense? I use Chicago as a test case and mapping tools like ArcGIS to analyze publicly available data on uh, job locations relative to the different parts of the city that experience high poverty and high unemployment. And, you know, I looked at the distance between both those locations and the locations of jobs, which is fairly clear that at least within the city, there certainly is some distance between the residencies and the jobs, but also layering on this question of public transportation. And a city like Chicago has a lot of public transportation. Even if you look only at the metro line in Chicago, you still kind of come away with the thought that most of these areas are served by public transportation. What I didn't even talk about was bus lines, right? So there's more public transportation than was discussed in this paper. And 
despite that, my conclusion was very few parts of Chicago are truly experiencing spatial mismatch as we imagine it. I thought that was a really fascinating finding because this source of geographic inequality is very frequently identified as consequential. And, you know, bus service in Chicago and how long the bus takes and so on, that's quite variable. But the L is a lot better and more reliable. And, you know, one thing that struck me, you can't escape it looking at your maps in the appendix, is how many uh, high poverty neighborhoods are actually quite close to L lines. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I do think there's some limitations. I mean, I my arguments are so highly fact-specific and local. I chose one test case and analyzed that one test case. Now, the findings that I found in Chicago may well look different in a city that has a less robust public transportation system. Spatial mismatch may still have some real real power in the context of maybe rural-urban disparities, for example. I don't want to overextend the claim that spatial mismatch is not a good, a good explanatory factor. I don't know that I want to go that far, but I do think that it's overstated. I do think that we think a lot about place-based incentives and their job creation capacity without giving much thought to why we're creating jobs in those areas in the first place. Why do that? Maybe there are better places to put those jobs. Maybe there are better ways to get people plugged into jobs. I think that's part of what I'm showing here, right? In a city like Chicago and cities that look like Chicago, it might not be a reasonable approach. I have a question that is related to some of Greg's work, but this is a question for Shelley. So I think if we are concerned about job access and the fact that many sort of high opportunity jobs are located far from neighborhoods with high poverty. As Greg has pointed out in his research, there's all kinds of policies that implicitly subsidize car use and job sprawl. So to just take one example, like federal subsidies for highway spending and highway maintenance, should we be looking at place-based policies like opportunity zones? Or should we be thinking about removing some of these other subsidies that move jobs farther away from where people live? I think that a holistic approach to the problem would take a look at what, what incentives are existing that sustain the current status quo as opposed to simply looking at additive incentives that somehow counteract what we're doing otherwise. I think that that's a really good point. I haven't really looked at that in this particular paper, but I think it is something that's worth thinking about. You know, I think just generally nothing about our geography, particularly in urban context, is a total accident. I think there's a lot of history wrapped up in the patterns that we see. There's a lot of policy, there's a lot of legal background that has contributed to our residential patterns, to the locations of jobs, the types of jobs, the locations of highways, to all of this. This is not something that happens spontaneously, right? And so thinking about which incentives are existing that continue to support a geographic patterns that we may find to be counterproductive in this conversation is certainly a part of this story. Michelle, what do you think about proposals like the kind of Austin Glazer Summers discussion of place-based policies where they talk about a Tennessee Valley Authority for our century, you know, like these big public works projects? 
I don't know if they would address the job mismatch you talk about, but at least create jobs in certain regions of the country that also need some other types of public investment. So I think proposals like that are worth considering. I mean, I'm open to any range of place-based policy proposals and thinking about, I think that the answers are probably going to vary depending on the type of inequality you're concerned about. Some of the, most of the work that I've done in this piece has really been very specific to intra-urban policies that are targeting specific neighborhoods very narrowly. I have in mind things like opportunity zones and new markets tax credit and enterprise zones, more so than thinking about lifting up an entire city, for example, or ironing out disparities across rural and urban divides. I think that those are also elements of geographic inequality. They're just a little bit beyond the scope of what I've specifically looked at. And so the solutions may actually vary somewhat in that context. I think Kaylin's question does relate to, I think, another important theme in your paper, which is the political dimension. So policymakers might prefer tax expenditures compared with direct investment. And, you know, the other thing that I think was an interesting political angle is place-based redistribution policies might be more popular or more politically feasible compared with people-based redistribution policies. And yeah, I will just butt in and say that's one thing that I really enjoyed as I went through the paper is kind of just coming back to the implementation problem for addressing each of the sources of geographic inequality in your paper, like how do we decide who gets these tax credits? How do we decide which neighborhoods to target? As soon as we give more discretion to local policymakers who, like you said before, may know more about the area, you open up this can of worms of what is their objective function? Is their objective function just creating jobs in Chicago and helping the poorest people in Chicago or, or their objective function, creating jobs and getting reelected. And as soon as you add this getting reelected component, which is a totally rational objective to have as a politician, I'm not trying to be too cynical, then you get distortions from what maybe the social planner would do when they choose where to put the investments. I think that's right. And I think that it's an interesting problem to kind of lurk in the background of this whole conversation. You know, I get asked a lot, why don't we add a space-based element to people-based policies? So for example, let's increase the specific assistance, maybe the earned income tax credits or something in, in specific geographies. So we've identified the areas that have a heightened need. Let's give a higher earned income tax credit to people living in those areas, for example. And part of my thought there is I just don't think politically it's a winner to increase the cash assistance to a discrete population as compared to saying we're going to serve this population through improvements of neighborhoods and better housing stock, et cetera. There's a broader coalition that's behind that. Big banks regularly invest in these tax credit deals, developers and CDEs are completely sustained by low-income housing tax credit and new markets tax credit, for example. There's a whole industry growing up around opportunity zones. You can get a lot of people on board with that approach that you can't get on board with a simple, let's just send bigger welfare checks to folks who are living in these particular neighborhoods. 
The trade-off, of course, is who's capturing that benefit. How much of the benefit is actually making it to the people who live in those places? And that is where you start to get nervous, right? Depending on whether you think that industry and political factions have captured too much of that value, you may be spending an awful lot of money for something that doesn't have particularly high social value, at least when you're looking at the low-income populations who are affected by the policies. I think that is a trade-off. I've made a number of recommendations that I think would be very hard to garner full political support for to the same degree that we see currently, right? So is there still an appetite for these kinds of incentives once you design them in a way that more benefit can flow through to the low-income residents? I think there's still an appetite, but I don't think it's going to be as big. I mean, I think that opportunity zones are huge. You're not going to see anything like that with the kinds of incentives that I'm describing. Another source of geographic inequality that you look at in the paper is systematic disinvestment. I I take it the idea here is to use tax incentives to halt or reverse a downward spiral, kind of in recognition of the fact that money is not enough. Money to individuals is not enough. The problem is systemic. And so something has to be done using the place as a unit rather than just individuals. What did you find when you looked at this? And how did it compare with redlining maps? I mean, redlining is very much on front of mind for those of us who work on cities and the color of law, of course, being one recent major book that raised the salience of that issue. But you found you know, some interesting things around that. Yeah, the disinvestment theories essentially say one of the reasons why we have these problems that we have with poverty and high crime rates in certain areas, high health problems in certain areas, relates to features of the built environment that are a consequence of years of disinvestment by investors, disinvestment by businesses, banks and lenders. A lot of that can be traced back to the redlining policies in the 1940s. When I looked at the Chicago redlining map relative to the the patterns of vacant and abandoned properties in Chicago today, right now, and these are not just you know unleased rental units. These are properties that were reported to the city as problematic. These were somebody filed a abandoned property reports and said something needs attention with this property. So I think they're a good indicator of where problem properties are located in Chicago. When you compare those patterns to the redlining maps from HOLC from 1940, you actually see a pretty good overlap in the areas that were redlined as do not lend or warning, you know, caution in lending. But it wasn't one for one. Which suggests to me a couple of things. One, I do think intervening policies have probably disrupted these patterns somewhat in the interim. And so we don't see a clear overlap of the redlining map and the current vacancy patterns. But there's a fair bit that's still present. Other researchers have seen the same thing. If you look at redlining maps in various cities, I know there's been some research in, I believe, Detroit on this as well. It suggests that a lot of today's property values have been affected by that legacy of discriminatory practices. And you can see that fingerprint on today's today's neighborhoods. And so the question is, can tax incentives be used to start to reverse that policy? Part of our issue is that historically, people have not wanted to invest in these areas. They've deemed it to be too risky or otherwise just not desirable for investing or lending. 
can we start to reverse that with legal policies that then make those areas better investments, less risky? And that's kind of the thrust of my research in that area. Are there any examples of policies that do that already? And I'm just totally ignorant in this area. So have people tried things? Have there been different efforts across cities or anything like that? To specifically target previously redlined areas? Yeah, or or areas where there is this systemic disinvestment, whether or not it may be correlated with redlining in the city. I'm not aware, but I don't know that this necessarily means there aren't any. I don't know of any policies that very specifically let's require investment in these specific neighborhoods, but there have been a lot of policies that are in place to try to encourage banks, for example, to lend to low-income areas. So like the Community Reinvestment Act, for example, it's not quite as specific to a particularly previously redlined area, for example, but it does require banks that serve a particular metro area to make certain investments in low-income parts of the city, right? You have, And that's part of the motivation behind low-income housing tax credit investment is part of the motivation behind new markets tax credit investment. These banks are not looking for big profit on those investments. They're looking for regulatory credit towards their CRA requirements. So I think that's an example. I think that when you look at the rhetoric around something like opportunity zones, you see a lot of rhetoric that just says, these are areas that have been disinvested. People aren't investing in these areas at the same rate as they do elsewhere. So let's start investing there. In fact, if you look at the Opportunity Zones law in Chicago, and remember, this is going to vary because governors played a big role in the designations. But if you look at the locations of Opportunity Zones, they do tend to track quite closely the areas that have a high level of vacancies. So implicitly, there is some thought that these are areas where people aren't investing. Let's use our tax incentives to encourage people to invest in those particular areas. I'm not sure that there's a lot of recognition that we got to this place because of redlining. I think that's something people like to pretend is not as big of a deal anymore because, hey, Fair Housing Act, we did away with that years ago. You know, like Epstein's color of law, for example, kind of tries to dispel some of that myth. So one reason why a low-income household might live in a place with low opportunity or low quality of life might be because housing is cheap there. And so that factor may strengthen the case for person-targeted redistribution. I think there are other reasons why we still might want place-based redistribution, including these like neighborhood effects. And we haven't gotten to the last of your categories, which is this weak community infrastructure factor, which I think is a really important factor too. The thing I want to talk about is if we make investments in places with cheap housing, oftentimes those investments can result in higher housing prices. And so how should we think of the effects of these place-based policies on the welfare of low-income households when neighborhood improvements are often capitalized in higher housing prices? Yeah. So I have two kind of responses to that. The first is of the types of problems that I've described in this piece and the possible solutions, the invest in areas that have previously disinvested in order to improve the housing stock solution is the one that I feel almost most nervous about for exactly that reason, right? Like how do you go into a place and really spruce up the housing stock and otherwise turn around the built environment without raising the cost 
of living there for the people who live there. This is kind of the big fear when we think about gentrification. I think that it has to be done carefully. I think that the incentives can't be just general development incentives. I think that they have to have an affordable component. So you're actually requiring affordable housing to be part of the solution when making those changes to the built environment. I think that would help as opposed to opportunity zones, which seem to be encouraging an awful lot of luxury apartment renovation. So that's kind of one thought. I think you just tried carefully. I don't know that you can totally, I mean, I'm quite sure you can't totally stop the progression of neighborhood change and possibility of gentrification, but I don't think it's happening quite as rapidly as we think. So maybe that segues into kind of my second point. There's a lot of efforts to understand gentrification. And it is really, 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 really hard to study it, partially because it's hard to track people. And one of the elements of gentrification that we're concerned about, it's not just rents go up, it's the fact that people are potentially displaced, right? And they're forced out of neighborhoods. Now they end up moving from their improving neighborhood into a neighborhood that's just as bad as their neighborhood was before the improvements, for example, and potentially harming populations in that regard. But it's hard to research that because we don't track people like that. And so there's a good amount of research that calls into question how much incentives and policies like this actually do contribute to gentrification. I'm inclined to think that the research is not capturing all of the story and in its conclusions that there was actually a really interesting paper like last year that came out that said luxury condo development does not contribute to gentrification at all. Okay, by the numbers, it is definitely hard to prove that it does. I'm not sure that that's the whole story, but it might suggest that our concerns that any developments in these areas will inevitably lead to gentrification is maybe a little overblown. I'm not sure. There's more research to be done on that. So I think a lot of this, to me, underscores the difficulty of grappling with some of these concepts. So one of them is gentrification, which is famously difficult to define, but also to Jeff's question, how would we judge what success looks like here, whether the welfare effects are positive or negative. So for example, you could imagine a scenario where the people you want to help in the area where you want to help them are homeowners universally. And so the investments improve the neighborhood and their property values go up. And we can call that a success because they're owners. At the other end of the continuum, they would be renters. And so the individuals don't benefit, the landlords would benefit. And probably some of the landlords live in the neighborhood. So it's probably going to be a little bit mixed, but, but the people who you're really trying to help are not the landlords, they're the tenants and their neighborhood gets nicer, but then they can't afford to live there anymore. It's interesting that so much of federal policy pushes towards homeownership as the path to the American dream and wealth building and stability and all that. And so, you know, to me, one thing to think about is where do incentives like these fit in? in the mix of federal and other incentives. And I don't have an answer for that, but I wondered if you'd thought about what success might look like here for the current inhabitants and maybe for future inhabitants as well. Maybe not just people who move in with more resources, but just people who relocate. So there have been major internal migrations in this country, right? And so one thing to think about is whether it makes sense to privilege existing residents of an area over newcomers and how to balance those things. This is, of course, a classic objection, which is not to say one that's compelling in every circumstance, but objection to place-based policies. And I wondered if you thought about how these pieces fit together. 
Yeah, so I think the desired outcome is going to vary depending on the type of place-based problem that you're looking at. If the concern is a decaying physical environment that is exposing people to higher health hazards, for example, or high crime rates, I might look at those specific features. Has crime improved? Has lead exposure, for example, decreased? Do people have better access to working plumbing? Any number of factors that are specifically going to reversing the types of harms that we might have seen previously, I would want to see some evidence of that. I'm less concerned in that context about how income levels change, but to the extent that income levels are changing, I would ideally you would have the data to understand whether the residents living in a place left voluntarily or remained in the place if income levels in a neighborhood have increased. Is that the result of people moving in or is that the result of the current residents achieving some upward mobility? Having more data about that kind of thing would be very helpful for assessing the actual impact of these kinds of policies. But regardless, I think that what we really need to be is specific from the outset about what kind of outcome we want to see. If we want to see the current residents no longer living in substandard housing conditions, then there should be some mechanism for possibly tracking that and figuring out whether before and after these policies are implemented, residents end up living in better housing conditions. And that's quite apart from whether or not they remain living in poverty. There's a difference between being very poor and being very poor and exposed to lead paint peeling all around you. Okay. So I think that that's really the difference. You can fix one of these things by giving somebody cash, but to the extent that there are still certain exposures that are harming them in terms of health outcomes or in terms of exposure to crime, write all the checks you want. That's not going to solve that problem for people living in those communities. I think that kind of emphasizes the point you're making in the paper, which is you definitely need to target multiple things. You've got the employment side and income, and then you have the housing, you have crime, you have all of these factors that affect someone's life. And I study tax incentives for businesses to choose where they locate. And there's in that area, there's also a lot of mixed evidence of what works. And we haven't tried very many things. So we really, there's a debate on when does it work and how. But it seems anecdotally, when these things work is when they pair the tax incentive for the firm with investment in community colleges in the area to train up local workers to work in that firm. And then you have the you have more businesses coming in and you have the local workers actually working there. And, you know, those are the success stories that can't just be explained by a tax credit for Volkswagen. And so I guess I don't have a question. Uh, just uh, uh. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. And kind of part of what I'm trying to articulate in this paper when it comes to designing incentives for the very specific thing that you want to see. If you want to see jobs that can be filled by low-income residents who have had a hard time finding employment, actually think about what kinds of jobs that they would have the skills for or that we can reasonably train them to do, right? Don't make just a general incentive that can count for development or job creation. Even if it's just job creation, not just any job creation, let's do job creation that is specifically filled by people in these neighborhoods. Let's do job creation that requires some sort of training component. Hiring tax incentives have been used in connection with enterprise zones laws for years 
the ones that work the best, like you said, are the ones that include some component that's tied specifically to hiring and in some really interesting cases, specifically to hiring people from specific communities. I know Texas has, has experimented with that with some success. Here's a question for both Shelly and Kaylin. How big is the problem related to this political trade-off between targeting and consensus about a program's objectives and the size of the political coalition needed to enact it? So keep in mind, there's different levels, right? So we have federal laws and then we have state and local. I don't know that I can quantify. I'd love to hear Kaylin's thought on this, but I think that how feasible these proposals are is going to vary depending on the political makeup of a particular place. There might be more appetite for the kinds of things I've proposed in a very liberal city than in a more conservative city, for example, or maybe more West Coast than East Coast. You know, I don't know. I hesitate to guess who might be open to it, but I think that the political dynamics are going to vary a little bit from place to place. And so clearly these would be harder to implement in some places versus others, but there's always going to be lurking in the background that political economy story. I don't think you can escape it. If you're going to implement tax-based policy as your place-based approach, you're going to have some very strong coalitions that have opinions and are going to push for it if it benefits them and push back against it if it doesn't. Yeah. The issue with thinking about the level of government, I think, is really important here. When I study these tax incentives for firms, these decisions are made at the state and local levels. And the governor may have the state legislature on board, and then they can decide how much to offer a given firm. But if you're making the argument that these tax incentives are a good place-based policy to help out the most struggling cities or regions in the country, giving the discretion to the governors is not necessarily the right idea. And you never see these firms locating in the most struggling areas in the country. There's some states that never win subsidy competitions for firms, right? So because it's not done at the federal level, we don't say, oh, these are the most struggling places that need the most investment. Not saying that's the right way to do it and just saying that's not how we do it. So you don't ever see the firms locating there. The second thing I was going to say is I was reading this paper on place-based redistribution by uh, Cecile Gobert and Patrick Klein and Danny Yagan. And I thought it was really interesting because my prior was the same as Michelle's that there wouldn't be much support for this kind of increasing the earned income tax credit in certain places, right? And they do a survey of Americans and do find that there was more support than they were expecting. Of course, Americans answering a survey is different than politicians deciding how to spend a budget. But I thought that that was heartening and it will be interesting to see where that goes in the coming years. Yeah, that is really interesting. I wanted to give you a chance to explain the third category of factors that you describe in your article contributing to place inequality. Yeah, so the third of these is by far the most, not wishy-washy, I don't know, how do you explain it, right? This is a new theory that is starting to be developed in communications theory, sociology, and various other social science fields that are looking at the role that communication networks and social networks play in community health and resilience and just overall well-being. So you can find two neighborhoods that have 
very similar poverty level, for example, but one just seems to be doing better than the other. People are just a little bit healthier. They're a little bit better able to cope with big shocks to their community. Why is that? Well, one suggestion is that the neighborhoods that have these stronger information networks and stronger community ties are are just in a better position to, to respond to these issues and to cope with the struggles of poverty. The question is, can we learn from that? Can we take anything from that insight and use it to inform our tax policy making? If we're going to assume this is another explanation for why some neighborhoods seem to struggle. My thought there is we should start thinking about it. I think that this is a relatively new area that's gaining some traction. I was going to mention at the end Eric Klinenberg's book, Palaces for the People, which many listeners have probably already seen, but it's a relatively recent book just outlining Klinenberg's version of social infrastructure theory. Well, there's been some scholars at University of California who have been looking at communication infrastructure theory for the last 20 years or so in some of the low-income neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And over time, there's more and more evidence that these factors play a role. So how can tax incentives be used to strengthen those community bonds and strengthen information networks in ways that could benefit communities? I think that it is hard to answer that question right now because there are a few limitations on implementation. So one, we have to understand in a very concrete way, what community infrastructure looks like, what might constitute a community asset, for example, that is facilitating these kinds of engagement. We have in the research some ideas. They include things like safe gathering spaces. Public libraries are weird examples into public versus, versus a private example, but schools can function as important places of gathering really any place where people could, it could be a shopping mall for crying out loud. As long as people are going there and, and engaging in some way, these are places that can facilitate. On the other hand, there's also organizations that play an important role, whether it's a youth organization or a community organization, maybe it's a rec center like the YMCA. These are places that can play a really important role in connecting families and providing information and helping to sustain communities. If we can identify which communities are lacking sufficient community assets, we may be able to target tax incentives in a way to encourage the types of investment that can help build community assets. I think that to do that, ultimately, first, there's the biggest assumption, can we figure out how to map that? Which right now, I don't know that we have a good solution for, but in time, as data availability and social media continue to gain traction, we may have a better ability to build the map. But second, how do we encourage those specific types of investment? They're not likely to be high profit investment, like you might see in the context of something like opportunity zones. But when you look at new markets tax credit, that incentive has been used to help fund things like soup kitchens and women's shelters and community centers quite effectively. How? Because the incentive is designed in ways that enable the engagement of the nonprofit sector. And so I think that building off of that experience and, and looking a little more specifically to trying to encourage those types of investment in the areas that need them is a promising area to start kind of thinking about now. Because even if we can't do it right now, we may be able to do it in the future. Can I do a little bit of cross-discipline translation? I think from when I was reading this section on community factors and community infrastructure, what I thought of was these local networks, these local institutions, this is what these scholars in sociology and other disciplines are describing as what's inside this black box of what economists call 
neighborhood externalities or neighborhood effects. And so for economists, neighborhood effects are very familiar and they're a very important part of the foundation for thinking why place-based policies might be efficiency enhancing. But we don't really, economists don't really think very deeply about maybe what's inside of those things. And so that's what I thought was really useful was just like thinking, okay, what is it about a neighborhood? What are the specific kinds of channels through which these externalities and these effects come through? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's great. I mean, a lot of it is just the research in this area has been to just dive deeper and deeper into that question to try to understand the exact role that different types of institutions and networks play in communities. And I mean, I do think this is a relatively, like you said, there's a long history leading up to getting to these particular questions that are being asked, but in answering those questions about the details and getting closer to converting it into something that can be practically used to inform policy, I think we're still early in that space. I think your paper makes an excellent contribution in mapping these three sources of geographic inequality, spatial mismatch, systematic disinvestment in weak community infrastructure, and suggest some really compelling tools that can be used at different levels of government, subject, of course, to political constraints, which hopefully are malleable and can be shifted in the right direction. How do programs to target these types of inequality interact with local land use restrictions? So not only politics as such, but restrictions on zoning and mixed use, parking requirements, all of the bread and butter of tools that neighborhoods use to resist affordable housing and soup kitchens and so on. I guess to put it in a more flip way, so can we fund affordable housing and soup kitchens and expect get affordable housing and soup kitchens? Or are there enough veto points that either those won't be supplied in the quantity intended, or they'll be directed inefficiently so that they're difficult to access or that they concentrate in a way that they concentrate poverty. Yeah. So I've written a little bit in other pieces about the locations of affordable housing, for example, which is very much impacted by land use restrictions. I think in the context of place-based tax incentives, land use is always lurking in the background and may well affect what can and cannot be done. That said, I'm not sure. I mean, if you're already targeting a area that is very low income, I'm not sure that you're going to see the same barriers to introducing something like a soup kitchen or a community center or affordable housing in that particular location. I do think that there's a background question of if we're saying hey, let's redevelop these areas and provide affordable housing here. Are you contributing to these broader patterns of concentrating affordable housing in low-income areas when in fact what we should be doing as a policy matter is thinking hard about how we can make affordable housing more dispersed and include affordable housing opportunities in higher income areas? There's definitely a tension there. And land use definitely makes it harder to do that. So to the extent that our primary goal is affordable housing, if you were to implement a place-based policy that was mostly directed towards creating affordable housing in an area that is otherwise low poverty and higher income, now you're really going to run up against some NIMBY behaviors and resistance from communities and land use being weaponized as a way to prevent that result. So I think it really just depends on what you're trying to accomplish. It's a hard problem. And it's a theme that's also come up in many of the papers of guests that we've interviewed on the show. And 
for example, one solution historically has been to attach strings to federal funding, but then that makes it easier for a community to say, well, we don't really want affordable housing at all. And so the fact that you're attaching strings to it just gives us political cover to reject it. So I think policy design is hard, but the contribution of the paper, I think, is really compelling. And that is to map this area, literally, using high quality census and other data and to map the policy space. One of my goals for sure is to try to explain how how we can move from these theories to something that is practically informing tax credit design, tax incentive design, particularly given our ever-evolving ability to process large amounts of data. We can access data. We have really awesome and super accessible mapping tools at this point. And there's no reason to act like we can't figure this out with more detail or design it more carefully. We can design these incentives more carefully than we are currently. It just takes some will to do it. Michelle, is there anything that you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to get to today? The only thing that I would say is I have had people read my piece and say, okay, so I got to the end and actually I felt kind of sad and cynical. And I sort of felt like you were arguing in the end that we just shouldn't do this ever, perhaps. And it's a funny response because it's not really what I say, but if somebody were to read my research and come away with the idea that to do it right is something that's not going to happen, so we shouldn't be doing it at all. I wouldn't be surprised by that read, first off. So let me just weigh in on kind of what I think. I think we're not going to get to perfect. We're not going to get to perfect. So the question is, how much not quite perfect are we willing to tolerate? And part of the answer to that is what happens in the void? And is that a better situation or a worse situation? You can say we're not going to use the place-based tax incentives anymore because we can't get them to where we want them to be. And that makes some sense. But behind it is probably not anything better. I'm not seeing a whole bunch of alternative policy proposals. I don't think we're going to suddenly see a whole lot of cash thrown at these communities. I don't think that we're going to have non-tax place-based policies that aren't similarly flawed. And so if the alternative is and the counterfactual isn't actually an improvement, there may still be a case of keeping a somewhat imperfect place-based tax incentive. On the other hand, if that's simply not true, then I am quite comfortable with abandoning this exercise. Because if my research shows nothing else, it's just how hard it is to design these incentives in a way that would be truly beneficial. The paper is How Place-Based Tax Incentives Can Reduce Geographic Inequality. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us to talk about it. Now we move into our appendices segment. This is where we go around in round robin and make a recommendation of something, anything from a tweet to a Russian novel. Michelle, what's your appendix? Well, I was just going to flag a forthcoming symposium issue by the Fordham Urban Law Journal, which is going to be focusing on opportunity zones. So that issue is going to bring together a whole bunch of tax scholars who have been thinking about opportunity zones and various aspects of the program, including how it compares to other incentives that are out there, how the program may or may not relate to problems associated with gentrification, and various other deep dives into the opportunity zones law. So for listeners who are interested in learning more about that law, which is definitely in the headlines and definitely playing an outsized role in the place-based tax incentive context right now. Keep an eye out for that. It's not out yet, but it's forthcoming and it should be great. 
Great. Kaylin, what's your appendix? My appendix is also about opportunity zones. I figured it was relevant. So this is a paper that I'm going to discuss next week at the National Tax Association Conference. So it's this new paper called What Determines Where Opportunity Knocks. And it's about specifically what we were talking about today, about the discretion and how governors chose where the opportunity zones were within the state and how political affiliation plays into that selection process. And then they also do a a bit of work kind of analyzing the effects of the opportunity zones in the places that may have been selected for more political reasons and places that were selected for more economic reasons. So that's Rebecca Lester and Jeffrey Hoops and Mary Margaret Frank. They have a working paper on these opportunity zones. Great. Thanks. Jeff, what's your appendix for this week? I want to talk about the geography of opportunity and what happens when neighborhoods change. So the paper I want to recommend here is a really nice one by DNEC Alaprantis and Daniel Carroll. Both are economists at the Cleveland Fed. The paper is called Neighborhood Dynamics and the Distribution of Opportunity. It was in Quantitative Economics in 2018. It pairs really nicely with a recent working paper by Laura Duranencourt on what happened to the geography opportunity in northern U.S. cities during and after the Great Migration. That paper was called, Can You Move to Opportunity? So in this paper by DNEC and Daniel, what they're doing is they're studying whether racial equality under the law necessarily leads to equality of opportunity. And the answer is no, because of these changes in neighborhood effects and changes in neighborhoods over time. And so kind of the strategy of this paper is to build a model where households choose where to live and how much to invest in their children's human capital and their schooling and in their skills. And the return on that parental investment is determined in part by this sort of neighborhood externality effect, right? How far you go in life depends on what kind of neighborhood effects you're exposed to as a kid. And so they're going to use this model to study what happens when there's racial equality under the law. And so the method here is to actually look at the experience of mid-century Chicago. And so they argue that as Blacks were arriving to Chicago, they had very little choice in where to live. And so that helps solve this inference problem of endogenous neighborhood choice. And in using the model, they're going to run this experiment where they equalize the, quote, technology, this neighborhood spillover technology, as a way to incorporate sort of equality under the law, growing equality under the law. But what they're also going to do is allow households to now live in different neighborhoods. So they're relaxing this constraint about the neighborhood choice that especially that Blacks coming from the South faced when they first arrived in Chicago. So what they find as a result of the experiment is that average income increases in both areas, but it in fact leads to persistent disparities across neighborhoods. The reason is because Black households with sufficiently high income are going to leave the low opportunity neighborhood to live in the high opportunity neighborhood. And that's going to reduce these neighborhood spillovers for people who remain in the low opportunity neighborhood, but are able to enjoy sort of cheaper housing prices. This paper is nice because it, it dovetails really nicely with the William Julius Wilson's work and his hypothesis that racial equality under the law need not assure equality of opportunity due to changing neighborhoods. So the paper is Neighborhood Dynamics and the Distribution of Opportunity by DNC Alipraxis and Daniel Carroll. Neat. 
I want to flag an article by Jeremy Levine in Shelter Force. The title of the, it's really a post, is It's Time to Move On from Community Consensus. And it's kind of a summary of his forthcoming book. Jeremy Levine is a sociologist at the University of Michigan, and he's got a book tentatively titled Constructing Community. And it gets into some of the land use politics issues that are, that I think frustrate and propel place-based policies. And so he walks through several of them. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting and that jibed with the third section of Michelle's paper that she described as, you know, a little more avant-garde is kind of rethinking how residents submit feedback. So alternatives to community meetings. Some of these that have been tried include public art exercises and almost like game show style things where people answer questions like what should replace this abandoned factory? And then you don't just take a vote and move on. You would maybe come up with multiple options and they come up with creative ways to tease out preferences. The thing that struck me most about this is two things. One is, I guess, diverging from the the community meeting model, which I think a growing amount of research indicates is broken. But the other part is, you know, his focus here is rethinking what community means. And you know, maybe a better title, if I can suggest a friendly amendment, would be deconstructing community. His point really is that there's no such thing as a single community. There are individual members of the community that have conflicting preferences. And so there's arguably something problematic about referring to a community as a monolith in the way that the discourse often does. And so the point of these exercises that he recommends is not to achieve consensus, but rather to bring out the contradictions within the community over the fate of, say, an abandoned factory, so that a focused policy discussion can be had and a decision made that can withstand public scrutiny. Not because it represents the uniform will of the community, but because it represents the presumably the majority will or the you know, whatever standard they choose to apply. But the point is it would not be falsely representative of the community, but more authentically representative of the community in a textured way in recognition of the differences below the waterline. So I thought that was a useful concept. And he talks about some interesting ways to get at that that you don't see in a lot of the other literature. Thank you for listening. And thank you to our guest, Michelle Laser. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Kaylin Slatterty, our guest co-host this week. Thank you. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks, Greg. Our producer is Skylar Pals. Thank you, Skylar. Uh, check the show notes for links to the articles discussed on the show. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at Densely Speaking. Let us know what you think of today's show. You can also find us at our personal accounts. I am at Greg Schill. Jeff is at Jeff R. Lynn. Our guest, Michelle Laser, is at LaserTax, and our guest co-host is at Kaylin underscore Slattery. If you don't already, please subscribe to Densely Speaking wherever you get your podcasts, and please take a second to read the show as well. It helps other listeners find us. The views expressed on today's show are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, the Federal Reserve System, or any of the other institutions with which the hosts or guests are affiliated.